and I am back. Uh, listened to Annie's podcast a couple days ago about what she was up to, and I agree with her assessment on The Good Place. It is definitely among my favorite shows that have come out in the past couple of years, and I was very pleasantly surprised when it dropped on Netflix, uh, the last season that is. So my wife and I have started watching that, and maybe we're about a third of the way through, and we're still sort of waiting to see how it all wraps up, because uh, I know that it's ending. And it's just interesting to see how far the show has come in such a short amount of time, because it's only four seasons long, and most shows, if it was maybe a different showrunner or a different way of thinking, this they would have dragged this concept out forever. Maybe it would never, never have ended or anything, but everything basically has happened so fast. Like The whole first season is like a almost an entire series worth of events that happen, and then pretty much after that, it's almost always something happens that you're like, wow, that they did everything in one episode, when most shows would have been like, that would have been a whole season. So it's really exciting. Um, Annie mentioned that the library has it, so if you have not watched that yet, I would definitely recommend watching The Good Place. Um, it's by the same guy that did Parks and Recreation and The Office, and he did Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I believe, so he's got a pretty good track record for sitcoms and everything, and I like his style, but The Good Place is a little... A little deeper and a little, I guess you could say, highbrow comedy, but it also has a lot of the, the the lowbrow, you know, so to speak stuff. So it's a good mix of, you know, comedy for everybody. So I would definitely recommend that. And I've also recently gotten into Formula One. Somehow, uh, I was you know at home and I was watching the show, The Drive to Survive, and it's a Netflix docu-series about that chronicles the entire Formula One racing teams throughout the entire season and like you know the ups and downs and struggling to you know beat Mercedes which is the top team and it's pretty interesting to see how that sport manages all that stuff because it's very clear that there's these teams that are called like the midfield like, they're not trying to win because, like, they can't win because they don't have enough money to win. They may not have the best drivers. They don't have the best cars and all that. So, like, they're not even trying to win. Like, obviously, the goal is for them to win races, but, like, they seem pretty much on the assumption that they can never win given their current status, which I think is kind of interesting because you always see, especially in more, I guess you could say, American-dominated sports. Like, most people would never concede something before they actually do anything. But, you know, in Formula 1, it's like there's top teams, like Mercedes and Red Bull and Ferrari are the top teams, and then everybody else is just competing for, like, fourth place, really. And occasionally you'll have some teams that manage to sneak in, like, a second place or a surprise victory here and there, but ultimately... It's Mercedes to lose. Um, Lewis Hamilton, who is the driver for Mercedes, is probably going to go down in history as the best Formula One driver of all time. I believe he already has five or six championships. He's closing in on Michael Schumacher's record of seven, and he'll probably match or break that this year, uh, because I'm not sure how many he has right now off the top of my head. 
but he's basically won the past few years in a row, and Mercedes as a team has won, I'm pretty sure, like eight years in a row. His teammate won in between some of his victories, so he hasn't won consecutively, but the team, Mercedes, has pretty much won everything since like 2013 or 2014. Um, So it's been pretty boring, I guess you could say, if you're a really big Formula 1 fan, because it's pretty much like, oh, Mercedes is going to win this race, and they typically do win every race. They win most of the polls, and they win most of the races, and they get all the glory. But I guess part of the fun is seeing how the other teams react, if they're able to spend more money, get a better driver, a little bit of here, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So it's pretty interesting to see all that stuff that goes in, because those teams have so many moving parts like all the mechanics the engineers even like the pr people and like the presidents and all that stuff there's just so many things that you wouldn't think they're involved in just racing a car around a track that are involved but it's just kind of kind of crazy and those cars are super expensive too so if like anything happens to them during the race like it's usually like half a million to a million dollars just to fix the car so like it's really it's a a really expensive thing to get into if you're trying to break in and that's also one of the things that happens in the series that a lot of there's a lot of teams that are struggling that don't have as much money they need sponsorships or stuff like that so they end up getting sponsorships and like whenever their car crashes it's kind of a big deal because they're spending what limited budget they have trying to replace these cars whereas the other teams obviously they don't want to spend that money but they're more okay with it because they have the budget for it so it's really interesting to watch that play out, um, especially since most American sports have a salary cap, the exception being baseball, and you can kind of see the results for that. A lot of people always say, like, the Yankees or the Dodgers are always the top teams. They spend the most money, and, like, the other teams, like Oakland Athletics and Tampa Bay, aren't able to really compete with that. But, you know, year after year, you see all those low, low-value low teams quote-unquote, you know, competing for titles because they just have to spend their money a little bit more wisely. Um, And on that subject, if you haven't read or watched the movie Moneyball, that is a good explanation of how a small market team or small budget teams can compete with the bigger players because they look at players that are undervalued by the big guys and sort of build a team around these, you know, stat-heavy you know, players that get on base, do what they're supposed to do, maybe not some no flashy like home runs and RBI and all that stuff, which a lot of metrics, that was basically how players were judged, like by their power and their all that stuff. But there's a lot of other factors that the stats um, did. You know, the whole school of like sabermetrics has basically taken over all of sports now. There's so many advanced stats for every sport that I can't even keep track of everything. Uh, but it's quite fascinating to see that role in evaluating talent and players where maybe like maybe they don't pass the eye test, but really if you look at their raw numbers and all that stuff, they're actually a solid player, and you can build a team of those people for much cheaper than you would somebody who costs a fortune because they pass the eye test. So it's just really interesting, you know, watching Formula One, which mostly I don't really feel like has a very popular following in America, it's definitely a, I guess you could say it is a world sport, but definitely seems that European, um, it's definitely more centered for a European market, uh, maybe even Asia, 
I think, you know, it's a global sport. They have tracks everywhere. You know, most of the circuits are in Europe, but they have races in the Middle East. They have races in Asia. They have them in South America, and they even have them in the United States. So it really is global, but, you know, it doesn't seem that the fan base is representative of that, um, what they're trying to do, and then what they actually race. And I remember, you know, Annie was mentioning brain hq because being you know sort of stagnant and doing a lot of stuff we're doing during the pandemic it's just hard to sort of remember things because you're not sure if you did it already or you need to do it still because you know the sedentary lifestyle even more so and the pandemic is just sort of i think grating on all of us um not being able to really go anywhere see some people that we want to see and, you know, sort of out of the routines that we normally are in, even though we've been doing this for quite a while, I think the routine has just gotten so mundane and samey that it just, you know, the days are sort of blending together and it doesn't seem like anything's really happening, even though it's October. But it also feels like time is going super slow, so I'm also like, oh, it's October, it doesn't feel like it's been that long, but on the other spectrum, it's like, it's only October, it feels like this entire year has felt like a decade, or something, it's just sort of like, differing opinions day to day, on how fast and slow time is seemingly going, because this year has been an anomaly for all that, so, some days I'm like, yeah, this is fine, other days I'm like, I don't even remember what day it is and what I'm supposed to be doing today because for the library we're on a a split schedule I go back and forth between work and working from home and right now I've been able to stick with that like I haven't shown up to work on a day I was supposed to be at home and I haven't stayed home on a day I was supposed to work and I feel like you know thinking about it I feel like that would have been something with all this happening that I might have gotten a day or two mixed up here or there, I would have shown up to work on my work-from-home day and been like, yeah, I, I made a boo-boo. I just totally forgot all the days are sort of rolling into one another. So that playing, you know, Brain HQ or similar, like, brain games to keep your mind sharp is definitely very beneficial, and I believe, like, studies have shown that it 100% is, and probably anything that gets your mind active, maybe diff- that changes basically your normal day-to-day stuff is probably better than not doing anything. Um, I haven't dabbled too much with Brain HQ, and I know I probably sound like a broken record, but, you know, I play, you know, a lot of video games, and they're a little different. They're not necessarily made for keeping your brain stimulated, but if you look at it in a certain way, you know, most video games are just a big problem, and you just got to solve, like, how do you get from point A to point B, how are you going to do this, how are you going to do that, so it's a lot of problem solving, thinking on the fly, and just sort of breaking down, you know, big things into little things, and just sort of figuring that out, so that's sort of what I like about video games, not so much the fun factor, and sometimes the graphical prowess, and, you know, the gameplay is really fun, but just being able to, like, get into some situation, figure out the problem, then solve it and then just keep going and playing the game and getting a story so I think that you know gaming has benefits that maybe a lot of people don't really see on the surface level um, but I would definitely recommend 
playing any sort of game, whether it's like a brain game that's offered through Brain HQ, board game, uh, video game, you know, even crossword, like something simple that, you know, makes you think differently than you typically think day to day. Because usually, you know, work and school and sometimes even some of your other hobbies, you're, of course, sort of mostly kind of a little bit more relaxed and you're a little bit more familiar with how everything works. So there's not a whole lot of critical thinking to be done when you get really set in your way once you sort of figure that out it's sort of like basically common knowledge and it's like oh this is i can do this with my eyes closed but when you do something new or plays like a different game or a different board game or just do something else it sort of forces you to reevaluate how you think and then you can apply that to maybe a new how you do your current job or everything else and you can be like oh maybe it's good to reevaluate how I do things every so often because there might be a better way of doing it or maybe there's a way that I haven't tackled this problem that would be better for me personally because there's sometimes people do things not based on, you know, the logic of this is the best way to do it, but, oh, I've done it this way, so I'm just going to keep on doing it. Whereas, you know, if you maybe took a step back, looked at it from a different perspective, you would find a solution that better fits your style of doing things um, and everything is, you know, sort of circling back to the good place and philosophy. You know, I minored in philosophy in college and I like those were probably some of my favorite classes were philosophy because they were so different than anything else I had taken. Like you learn something, but just the freedom to think sort of however you wanted to with sort of like a framework, basically just doing thought experiments and doing this and doing that was really extremely beneficial to how I go about life now. And I think that most people would benefit from taking a little bit of philosophy or at least reading some philosophy, even if it's older. At The Good Place focuses mostly on ethics, and I took an entire class on ethics and philosophy, and that was one of my favorite classes. Um, some of the ones that we focused on were you know, Plato's... Uh, uh, Plato's ethics, and then there was John Locke's ethics, um, you know, based on his writing The Leviathan, and we also tackled uh, utilitarianism from John Stuart Mill, and we also read about Immanuel Kant and his, you know, ethical concepts like the categorical imperative, you know, stuff like that, and how to, how the best way people should act given a certain situation, and it's interesting to see how different people thought about people living together, being, you know, are they more individualistic? Are they more, you know, socially interested and stuff like that? So it's really just a fascinating subject just to read about and learn about, you know, just on the side. If you're just looking for something new to read, I would definitely recommend philosophy. You know, not just, it doesn't have to be ethics. There's a whole lot of branches. I took theory of knowledge. I took epistemology. There's just a lot of different things and just sort of get your brain thinking because it's generally not a lot of things that people tend to think about. But philosophy is sort of like the whole essence behind most of what we do. It's like, why do we do this? Like asking questions like, why do we think this is true? Why do we believe this to be the best way to go about living and stuff like that? And then, you know, maybe there's no right or wrong answer, but I think that's the great thing about philosophy is you could, you know, read something and, you know, I can have you question maybe what you already believe in, which I think is good for for any sort of thing you consume. Is if it can sort of 
open up your mind, not necessarily change your mind, but if you can sort of open up your mind a little bit and just sort of think differently about the way that you currently are, it might be good for everybody. So with that, I will end this episode, and I look forward to listening to Andy again.